you have to make mistakes because that's the sort of edge of your seat drama that being in a band should be. But I understand why people have terrible drug problems and alcohol problems because a lot of the entertainment industry is finding out it's nothing like you thought it would be. I had my battles with record companies back in the 80s and, and won the, the right to make the records I wanted. I spent 10 years of my life with no money. Trying to get a record deal was so I was my own boss and I could do what I want. Because you're altering the DNA of everything you've been listening to. Altering it, bringing it up to date, modifying it and turning it into um, you know, a kind of higher art form. I mean, we're all expected to be videographers and influencers and all of this at the same time. And I'm not any of those. I'm a songwriter. For every cold play, there's 10 other cold plays that all got signed in the same year. You know, yeah, there's a lot of broken dreams in the business. I was nowhere. You know, I had, I'd lost my record deal, massively in debt, and no obvious signs that I would ever be able to recover that, you know, because a career looked to be pretty much finished. I was terribly uh, ambitious, really, both in terms of getting on top of the pops, but also in terms of getting my vision to come true. There is no formula to having a hit record. It happens, and it's probably 60% luck, 30% talent, and 10% timing. Making a hit record is tough, but maintaining success is another skill entirely. On The Art of Longevity, we explore the artist's experience of the music business from the inside. I want to find out what separates those artists and bands that have survived decades in the music business from all those who've fallen by the wayside. We follow a narrative inspired by a quote from Brett Anderson of Suede, who said that all successful artists have followed a similar career arc like Stations of the Cross. The struggle, success, excess, disintegration, and if you're lucky, enlightenment. With insights and stories for music fans, aspiring musicians and creators, this is The Art of Longevity. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the revered British premium audio brand. Bowers & Wilkins makes some of the world's finest audio products from the iconic 800 series loudspeakers, trusted by Abbey Road Studios for over 40 years, to the flagship PX8 wireless headphones. This is music as the artist intended you to hear it. John Resnick of the Goo Goo Dolls, welcome to The Art of Longevity. Thank you. It's nice to be here. John, how are you today and whereabouts are you? I am in Florida, somewhere between Tampa and Clearwater. So I think it's oh, Boca Raton. So uh, yeah, we're here. We have a show tonight. Yeah, you have just kicked off what is a big tour. How did the first show go? The first show was really good. Like the audience was always fun, but uh, you know, uh, made a lot of technical mistakes and glitches, and we were fighting like thunderstorms coming in and out. And it was a huge outdoor amphitheater, and it was it was an interesting evening. It was like you have to get through a few of those, and then uh, everything starts to run normally. But you know, I was forgetting parts of songs and stuff, and I was like, "Oh my god, I can't believe this!" I mean, we we rehearsed, but I just had first night jitters. You're only human, right? Even though you've yes. been doing this 
a long time. I mean, I think your audience is pretty forgiving, aren't they? Just pleased to be there. Yeah, they've been really, really good to us. But, you know, if I screw something up, I'll cop to it. You know, I'll just be like, well, I screwed that up, but I'll get it right next time. (laughs) (laughs) So let's move on. And it's a big tour. How do you prepare both you as a person and then as a band? Are you well-drilled or do you leave things to spontaneity? And how do you approach a, a big tour like this? We wind up rehearsing maybe 40 songs and then, you know, picking like 30 and then kind of trying to, we have like a core set that we play, you know, because I'm a believer in the the thing that says you have to play the hits. People are paying a lot of money to come see you play. You got to play the hits. And, um, and I enjoy that because it's like, I love, I love, I love the fact that I was able to write something that people relate to and they still enjoy and they, and they want to hear it, you know, so that that's a great thing. So I feel it would be a little arrogant and ungrateful of me to not play those songs. I would be a liar if I, if I said, Oh, I just love playing Iris every single night, you know, every <laughs> once in a while, every once in a while I'm like, Oh guy, okay, here we go. But when you see the crowd, and they're enjoying it and they're loving it. And that song has been part of their lives. It's like, how can you not be humbled by that? Yeah. I think it's a great attitude. It, it kind of is more interesting then to think about where you place those hits in the set list, right? Well, you know, Robbie convinced me that, uh, yeah, you play Iris last. And I'm just like, but that's what bands do when they only have one song that anyone knows. <laughs> They always play it last, so everybody sticks around. They have to hear all the other songs before they get to the hit. But I'm like, it works. So, okay. So you get Iris last. It's a huge sing-along these days. I mean, can you even hear yourself? You know what? doesn't matter if I hear myself because I got them (laughs) to play it. Yeah. I got them to sing it for me, so it's like, so it's a good thing. It's just such a good feeling because it's like, like, it's just one of those moments where you feel like everybody in the room, I mean, you know, in the United States, it's like everybody is so divided. Everybody is so, you know, they're in their own little little camps. And, and uh, you know, and, and we're sort of, our nation is very divided. But it's like when everybody steps in the room, it doesn't matter anymore you know because they they got one thing in common okay they dig the band so okay so let's put the rest of this nonsense aside and just have fun together you know and that, i think that's something people can't get online people can't get from ai yet but uh you know just having this experience where you're actually interacting with other human beings is just amazing yeah, I think in, in many ways, and maybe it's a, especially since we bounce back from the pandemic, if, if we have, is that gigs are hugely important as joyous occasions for whichever side you're on, you know, whichever camp you're in. Yeah, I mean, humans are, humans are basically pack animals. Just that human interaction, just sort of like watching the people come in and then, you know, from on the side of the stage watching the people come in and they're they're excited and happy and then you know standing in the wings 
and watching them all leave and they're and they leave happy so it's like that's a good feeling you have plenty of songs in your arsenal to to kind of bring that togetherness and you got to have a new song out run all night which is very much from the kind of top draw of your of your classic songwriting where have you put that in the set and is this the beginning of some new material from goo goo dolls yeah that's sort of the beginning of the next phase because the record industry or whatever you want to call the music business is in such a state of flux and it's so we don't know do you release one song at a time every couple of months or something like that do you put a whole album together and release it you know i mean i'm not, I'm not exactly sure what to do about that and um but it's getting harder. I mean, I think it's important to keep releasing music and keep writing, mostly because it's like I, I don't feel like I'm done yet. I'll know when it's time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, you're on a rich seam of form, I would say. I mean, this this is the thing. You know, approaching what forty years in the business since the band was formed in '86. And I think it's thir- is it thirteen studio albums? I mean, who's counting these days? I think it's thirteen. Oh man, I don't even know. Thirteen, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sort of in and out working on the fourteenth one. So I wasn't that familiar with the band's catalog, but checking it out and listening to recent albums, Chaos and Bloom, which was just came out last year, and Miracle Pill. I mean, they were both a very well received and great albums. So it, there must be a, a special feeling to being at this stage of your career yet still making really good material and you know i'm not just saying that you know it's good thank you very much that's that's uh you know i don't know i don't know i i always think it's more important to be a songwriter than it is to be a rock star you know what i mean although being a songwriter now is like incredibly difficult because you just don't make any money writing songs anymore you know, I mean, it's it's incredibly difficult to make money writing now because of the way the the way the streaming services and their deals with the record companies and and less and less and less is going to the artists again. Of course, nothing new about that. Hearing you mention this in a week where you know on the industry side, the news is of Spotify putting a dollar on the price, and you just think, well, what difference has that made? <laughs> not to me it makes no difference to me you know i mean they're just giving themselves more money i mean you know there's people from i mean the record companies are making they're making the money i mean you know spotify is giving money to the record companies they're just not giving it to the artists you know it's like what are you going to get what quality of music are you going to get when people have to work day jobs you know, and like, you know, the whole phenomenon of being poor and famous. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I don't know if that's going to work, but you know what drives me nuts about the music business? Like over here in the States, it's like all the writers went on strike, you know, and uh, television, movies, all that. They all went on strike. Then the actors are going to go on strike and to show their solidarity. But the musicians union, nah, it's never going to happen. They're never going to go on strike. And that's why musicians get treated like like janitors. <laughs> like the janitors of the Yeah, office. I think it's fascinating because it's just in recent years as well that Hollywood writers, the actors have gotten their shit together. And and it, it is on principle, it is about things like 
you know, where does streaming leave us and, and the threat of AI. But it feels like musicians are, A, not organized enough or, or maybe a little bit afraid as well to kind of speak out. I think so, because it's like in the, in the music business, I mean, I'm sure it's the exact same way in the, in the movie business where there's a thousand people ready to cut your throat and take your place. But yeah, musicians don't seem to be very unified or, or there's, I don't think there's a lot of solidarity in that. And I think they are afraid to speak out. They're not organized. Um, you know, we're all, I mean, you know, we're all in the union, but because over here you have to be in the union. If you're on a major label, you have to be part of the musician union. You know, who if I played in a wedding band, they would be amazing for me. They would get me gigs playing birthday parties. But, you know, when you're... When you're a, a real touring band on a on a major label, they do they do nothing for you. Well, I mean, speaking of songwriting, I mean, you must have been in demand over the years as a as a songwriter and a co-writer. What do you think of these songwriting camps as well? Have you ever sort of tried it? No, I think it's garbage. Name one hit that ever came out of a writing camp. <laughs> it doesn't ha- it doesn't happen? I think it's a bullshit exercise. You know, like, oh, I'm going to spend two minutes or I'm going to spend two hours in the morning with these guys writing the song. Then I'm going to run over to the other side and, and spend two hours with people writing the song. I, I know, I understand what they're trying to do. It's about networking. And I'm a horrible networker. But for me, it's like my songwriting happens at three in the morning with, you know, a guitar sitting on my sofa and a notebook. And that's the way I do it. And, and I've also learned the power of collaboration, but I only work with people who I adore and respect and people who have done more than I have. You know, my writing partners over the years have been, you know, Greg Wattenberg and Drew Pearson, Derek Furman, these guys who are, you know, they're just great writers and they're good guys. And it's like my, or I write alone. You know, and um, I'm not trying to use music to launch my my clothing line or my my cologne or my vodka or my movie career or whatever. I'm a songwriter and I'm a performer, and that's what I do. And I've been lucky and blessed enough to be able to earn a living doing it. That's what worries me is what happens to the generation in front of me. You know, the younger guys. How are they going to be able to make a living? Because it's like, look, are we going to go back to, to a system of patronage where some tech billionaire hires me to write a set of songs for his party? I don't know. Is that what it's going to be like? I think it's sort of all, yeah, I mean, it's sort of already happening, isn't it? You know, we, ha- we have Patreon and, and artists have tried to kind of launch their own subscriptions and fan clubs on that. And private gigs are a thing, you know, and it just feels yeah. like... I do them. I mean, I do private shows. It's like some rich guy calls me. You're going to pay me what? <laughs> to play at your wife's birthday party? Yeah, I'll see you there. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, like, as you say, if you can monetize your craft in that way, do it. Because, I mean, these days, the biggest platforms aren't a way to make a living for most artists. You know, 99.5%. Yeah. The thing that is people don't realize how much time and how much money it costs to make music. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, it, and I think that if you're not 
afforded the opportunity to work under proper circumstances and and get the support and the infrastructure that you need to 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 fully realize an idea musically then it affects the quality of the work it's funny i have a friend who is named sam hollander who is a really brilliant songwriter and he and i have written together we wrote miracle pill and a couple of other songs together and this guy is so talented it's insane so he's this great songwriter and and he's a producer and stuff and he played me this music that he wrote with this girl he's developing this artist and i'm like man this is amazing this girl is so good and the songs are great and uh so he's like okay he really believes in her so he's going around to some A&R guys that then those A&R for people in the audience, A&R guys are the people who sign bands to record labels. Plays the music for them, for them. First question out of their mouth is, what are her TikTok numbers? <laughs> and it's like, yeah. what do you mean? What are her TikTok numbers? She doesn't have any TikTok numbers. She's a legitimate singer songwriter. And uh, they're like, nah, I got to get the TikTok numbers up and then we'll, uh, and then we'll, we'll think about it. And I'm like, but how much amazing music is not being heard? Because that's a metric that you have to use, whether you're deciding an artist is viable or not through TikTok. Give me a break. Hey, discerning listeners. I wanted to introduce you to another music podcast that's one of my favorites called Tape Notes. Tape Notes is at the other end of the spectrum from the art of longevity. It's all about the details of how records get made. Presented by legendary music broadcaster John Kennedy, Tape Notes talks to artists, producers and studio collaborators who create the records that we love so much. It's like lifting the bonnet off the creative process, but it doesn't demystify it. It just enhances the experience of listening to those records and getting closer to the artist and their process. The guests on Tape Notes are an eclectic who's who of modern music, including the 1975, Fred Again, Blur, Phineas, Foles, King Gizzard, Royal Blood, Bicep. My favorite episode is with Leanne Le Havas about the making of her most recent album. Tape Notes is on all the usual podcast platforms. Audiences of classic bands are getting younger, and young audiences are discovering great songs from the catalog of artists who have been around for 30, 40, 50 years, and that's what they love. You know, they're going to gig singing every word. I, I mean, I saw this yes. with Billy Joel in Hyde Park just, just two weeks ago. So there's this kind of strange, it's like the industry is feeding the beast, but yet, yet classic songs are what it needs. Like, this is what tomorrow's business needs. Absolutely. But again, you know, all that music was created when there was a very different system in place. And that artists could actually make a living doing this. What, see, it's like, you know, the record companies are great for older artists who have catalogs. And the catalog moves a little bit, you know, every time. And there's that, but like, you know, new, new artists and that they're just not, they're not very few of them are generating the kind of money that, that they can actually make a living for, you know? And it was, it's one of those situations where it's like, it's not in the best interest of the record companies to do anything about it. 
you know, because they don't want to pay the artists any more money. And you've had a good run with with labels, right? I mean, it's unusual for a band to. I think you've made ten albums with yeah. with Warner Records, uh, and that is unusual these I've days. I've been on Warner since nineteen ninety. I've been there longer than anybody. Something is working in that relationship. They are, you know, they obviously believe in your new material. Do you get a sense that? That's genuine, the backing the new material, or is it about sort of, you know, pushing the catalog essentially? I mean, I think I think every time I release a new song, the old stuff starts to move again. So I think that that in that respect, I think that they they believe in the new music because I think it I think it causes the old material to move a little bit more. Like you see a spike in the streaming and stuff every time you release a new song. You're very much an album band, though, I would say. How much has the resurgence of vinyl and the longevity of the album format, how much of that is important to you? Because it feels to me like, again, A, young people are listening to albums again. Maybe maybe they're not putting them on you know, from start to finish, but they're collecting those albums. Yeah. And, and artists want to aspire to make an album. It seems like the thing has, has kind of come back around. Yeah. I mean, like what I like doing is like, I like, I like going into my little space for a couple of months, just collecting ideas and experimenting with drum machines and synthesizers and all that stuff. And then, and then, you know, doing late nights and just with, with an acoustic guitar and a microphone and just, all that kind of thing, and just collecting the ideas and then sort of sorting through them. Because I, I, in me, I like to take, and it's not to make a concept album or anything like that, but I think if I start the writing process and I just write everything I need to write over the course of a few months and then put that together in an album, to me, it's a more cohesive body of work than if I just, you know, well, I wrote this song and I put it out. And then two months later, I wrote this song. There are themes that begin to run through all of the songs on the album, intentionally or unintentionally, that seems to happen to me. Like, well, yeah, you know, you're, you're in this particular frame of mind, you know, from September to April uh, one year. And that was the time you were writing and recording. And I think it I think it sort of glues all the material together into something that that's that's kind of cohesive from start to finish. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me that it's it's an enduring format in that sense, because you know, ten years ago we were talking about, you know, the death of it and everything else. But as you say, there's that curation aspect to it, right? You the culmination of ideas that goes into making a record and then packaging that within the cover art and sleeve notes and everything else. Yeah. And it's also the culling of the garbage. <laughs> yeah. The pruning. <laughs> I'm always amazed by these bands. Like, you know, they're like, well, you know, we wrote about 130 songs and went into the studio. It's like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. <laughs> you wrote eight really good songs. And then you had, you know, 104 songs that were horrible you know <laughs> and like so and you know you strip it out it's like i'm very much into the editing process of something yeah yeah 
it's like playing baseball or whatever. You know, it's like you hit the ball three times out of ten. You know, you're doing okay, but but you know, I just don't think I'm not that kind of writer. I, I I'm not very precious about my writing, and if it's shit, it's like, well, this is shit. Throw it away. Okay, throw it away. You know, some days you just write shit. You were very much the self editor and producer of Chaos in Bloom, right? Which is a good example of that. Again, return to the, you know, simple batch of 10 songs kind of thing. Yeah. Talk me through this. Having made a batch of classic songs that everybody knows, and then also getting working your way through 13 albums, in terms of longevity, which is more important to you, a classic album or a big hit song? Well... I mean, I've had big hit songs, and I have not had big hit songs. And it's nicer to have a big hit song than it is to not have a big <laughs> song. But, uh, but that being said, most of my favorite songs that we've written are, haven't been the big hits. And I do love those songs, too. I like the hits, too. But I think the body of work is, is ultimately more important. I think for if in over time, you go back to some of those albums. There was an album that we we made in 2008 called Something for the Rest of Us. And that album was a commercial failure. And the record company hated it. And they didn't really want to put it out. And it was ultimately, I, I was just like, you know what? Don't put it out. You know, don't put it out. Just get rid of me. Do whatever you want. I don't care anymore. Because I was working on that album so hard. And I was just, I got to the point, I couldn't figure out what the hell they wanted from me. So I was just like, here's the album, put it out or don't. And nothing happened with it. It was, it was, it was a commercial flop. But but I look back on that album now, and a lot of people look back on that album now and go, Wow, that's one of your best records. And it's interesting how how some time and distance will create this different perspective on it. You know, it's like, I'm always amazed because like, I was not a fan of Led Zeppelin until I was about 40. Okay. Because when I was a kid, I was super into punk rock and new wave and, you know, dance music kind of, you know, Depeche Mode and Elvis Costello and the Chameleons and, and, but I was also into the Clash and like, you know, the punk rock bands and all that too. But then, you know, but I also liked Def Leppard, you know, so, you know, and that was taboo. You couldn't Elvis Costello and Def Leppard in the same time or whatever, you know, it was just, you know, because you had to choose a side, but I wasn't about to do that because I think there's amazing things in all kinds of music. Where would you recommend a new listener to start with? the Goo Goo Dolls catalog. But I, I think it's really interesting to even talk about those albums that do, I think, just deepen the body of work in that respect. You know, and if there's one redeeming feature of streaming, it's that if you give it time, those kind of records will eventually come to the surface. Yes. It is mind-blowing to me that, you know, you can basically have most of the recorded music that's ever been you know, recorded, you can follow the history of recorded music through through streaming, you know, in a lot of ways. I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting. And you can do these deep dives and 
you know, you go to Shazam and like, I've never heard this before. Oh, what is this? And where does this lead me? And that takes you down a rabbit hole. So it's, it's a great educational tool in a certain way or a way to discover, you know, what you love. But, you know, it would be nice if the artists got, got their share of it. Answer this question about where should a, a new Google Dolls fan sort of start? Where could we kind of get into I would probably start with like an album called uh, Hold Me Up, which which was just, you were just starting to hear the evolution of the band there, where I was actually learning how to really write songs because I'm completely self-taught. And then Superstar Car Wash after that was when I thought I was writing very tightly wound songs like like tightly wound meaning the arrangements were very tight the lyrics were very tight and it was like i was just starting to hit my stride you know and just go from there go forward from probably from hold me up on and it's like you can hear the progression of things and it's like i I think you know you can hear where we're at in our lives you know at that at that point in time and in terms of how your songwriting has changed up until to now, so what's different after many years at the craft? Which bits come easier to you now, and which bits do you still find hard to do? Um, lyric writing is always the most difficult thing, you know, uh, for me, what I'm good at. So, you know, it's like writing a music bed is not as difficult to me. That comes much more naturally and easily to me but it does help to have a good producer around because they can help you explore expressing what you're doing in a different way with different instrumentation different arrangements those kind of things on chaos and blue a lot of the bands that i was listening to uh i was listening to a lot of death cab for cutie and a lot of old chameleons album uh, you know the old chameleons and the cure and and uh, oasis and um the national and i was just i was listening to the arrangements on the songs and i'm just like wow this is really interesting because it really is breaking the form i'm always fascinated by these songs that start out with just like a voice and one instrument and then they build as they go and then they reach this crescendo and then it's just like wow Whoa, I'm really moving. I love a lot of dynamics in music. And I think a lot of modern music is very linear. And there's just a slight little bump. And it's really difficult to do. There's a slight bump at the chorus. Like I'm listening to a lot of music and I'm like, I wonder how much of this is because there's no money to make records anymore. Or if this is just what people are influenced by. I mean, you know, a lot of people making albums on laptops, you know, and and with a little keyboard and, uh, you know, the internal sounds that you can get on a music program, you know, like a, a recording platform, Logic or whatever, comes loaded with some instruments and things like that. And, you know, it's just sort of creating inside the box. Yeah, it's weird how it can affect you as a listener as well. Because when you listen to a lot of pop, a lot of modern pop, it's there's, there's so many, as you say, sort of signature sounds and even down to these sort of countdowns that you feel like it's ear candy. 
And then if you go back to listening to something where, you know, it is a voice in a guitar for a couple of opening bars or something like that, or off-kilter time signatures, which, you know, on the, on the national album, Trouble Will Find Me, that's one of my favorite national albums. And it's all kind of these weird timings. The drummer in that band is insane. Yeah, he's amazing. He's so good. He's amazing. My two favorite drummers in the whole world, that guy and the guy in Death Cab for Cutie. Ah. Oh. Yeah, I saw Death Cab at uh, the Royal Albert Hall a few months ago. I'm a fan anyway. I have been for a long time, but I hadn't seen them live for a long time. And I was, we were quite far away. You know, it's like Royal Albert Hall is big. But, you know, they just took their time to your point about, you know, how they make music. They just took their time and drew you in. And it, it was fascinating. Yeah, no, they're amazing. The keyboard player in that band, the guy, Zach Ray, and uh, we got to work with him a couple of times. He's just a monster. He's so amazing, so talented, and so unique and so original. It's just, you know, and, and, and he plays with Death Cab now, and it's like, wow, it's like really amazing. Thank you for listening to The Art of Longevity. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Please take a moment to rate the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen, and do spread the word. Listener recommendations are still the best way for us to build the audience for the show and keep us in the game for future seasons. Also, you can sign up via the Song Sommelier webpage for our newsletter, artwork, and much more. In a way, Death Cab and The National have sort of been, they've come along as the next generation of what you do, and they've, they've built long careers. And, you know, they've gotten better over the years. But to your point earlier, who do you think could represent that next generation? I mean, you mentioned Sam Hollander earlier. Is there anyone else that's kind of caught your ear now that you think is, is here for the long term? If the world is still able to sustain an artist for more than two years, I think Sam Fender. I I, I listened to the, the 17 and Going Under and then the album before that. He's amazing. He he is, to me, he is the voice of his generation. When you listen to him lyrically, it's just like it expresses all the concerns and the angst and the the anxieties of that generation. You know, I, I was so moved by his lyrics. He, I was like, this is the Gen Z Bob Dylan. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I think it was Hypersonic Missiles was the first oh, album. Oh, Hypersonic Missiles. With Dead Boys. Dead Boys. Oh my God. And Hypersonic Missiles. And it's just like, you know, yeah. And then there's just the lyrics. I'm going to get them wrong, but it's like he's singing about all the kids in the parking lot. And then he's he's talking about eating himself to death at the at the, the Magnum ice cream machine or whatever. And I'm just like, oh my God, it's so relevant to his generation, you know, and and beautiful. It gives me great inspiration, Sam, because to your point earlier about, you know, if you want to write, you know, real songs, well, he's doing it. And he's he, he has an army of young fans that love what he's doing. But he's also been very vocal about his struggles with you know just how he copes with the modern pressures of the industry and all of that yeah and like he he's staying in his in his small town right isn't that his thing 
Yeah, absolutely. With, uh, you know, just that very close inner circle of friends around him. And I, I guess just Smart. keeping out the entourage and, and the machinations of, of the industry. Yeah. You know, it was really funny when Robbie and I got, you know, as Robbie and I had been kicking around in a van for 10 years and sleeping on people's floors and, you know, the whole thing. And, and then, you know, and we were happy doing that. But then, boom, all of a sudden, the song Name becomes this huge hit in America. And um, it's amazing, all the strange characters that start showing up at your door. <laughs> you know, and sort of trying to push their way into your life. And you, and it's like, you know, you have to be this incredibly open and vulnerable person in your music, but then it's kind of schizophrenic because then you need to protect yourself because there's no shortage of people who just want to take from you and people who, who really don't give a shit about you as a human being. They just want to get something out of you, you know? So that was kind of a, a bit of a crisis there and that's when the drugs and the drinking and everything started pretty hard you know for us because it was just like who what the hell is going on you don't know who to trust you don't know who to believe in you know so so it it became for me it became very isolated that's when my trouble started you know because i isolated myself and wrote millions of songs and and just you know was drinking myself to death and who did you have around you at that point? I'll give you an example. I was just watching, I was watching Elton play Glastonbury, you know, do the headline set at Glastonbury. It's the Yellow Brick Road tour and it's his farewell tour. But, you know, I noticed that it's the same band. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's the same drummer, same percussionist, same guitar player. And so he's kept that group around him through thick and thin. And got, I mean, you know, yeah. Elton's doing great, but he's been through you know, some ups and downs. Who have you had around you? Who supported you through, you know, the darker times? I mean, Robbie, you know, we've had each other, you know. Um, and, you know, we're from Buffalo, New York, and it's like, it's it's hard to suffer fools when you grow up in this post-industrial kind of wasteland, you know, and, and your prospects aren't very, aren't very bright if you're going to live within that that system back in the day you know in the 80s when we were you know coming of age and 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 it was i went to school i was i was went to a vocational training school and i was i was going to be a plumber and then the whole all the industry in that town shut down so it was very much like what i guess what we do consider that someplace like sheffield or birmingham or whatever i guess yeah or I don't south know. shields you know i mean to you know it kind of bodes well for for sam fender in many ways if you come from that background and you you kind of you're made of stern stuff i mean it's, you know yeah you're a little less susceptible to the bullshit of people you know you're brought up in a way that you have to keep your eyes open and protect yourself was there a point where you realized you could make a long game career from music. Could you pinpoint it? Because I guess, you know, whatever happens, you know, those low points or those, you know, moments of excess, you can write a great song and kind of come back from it somehow. Is that how it works? Or is there a little bit more to it than that? You know, you have moments where you act like a rock star or whatever, you know, and like, you know, the only time I say, I swear, the only time in my life I ever used 
what I do for a living to weasel my way into something, you know, because I, I hate that thing. Don't you know who I am? Don't ever say that because they're going to go, no, I have no idea who you are. And like friends will be doing gigs and uh, they'll be like, I'll put you on the guest list. I'm like, no, I will buy a ticket and I'll text you. And if you want to hang out after the show, I'll come backstage. And, I don't want to ever be that guy that shows up and says, I'm on the guest list. And then they go, mm, no, you're not. And so <laughs> I would rather go buy my own ticket, sit in the audience, and then go backstage after the show. Well, me too, because I mean, you know, these days that's how bands make a living. So you feel like when it, yeah. somebody offers to put you on the guest list, you kind of feel like, well, am I cheating someone out of a ticket? Am I cheating you out of a ticket? Nah, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. I'm like, no, no, I'll pay, I'll pay my way. You got to support the cause. We're talking about writing your way out of a problem, essentially, because, you know, yeah. that's the magic that you have. But, you know, it's not, I guess it's not like turning a tap on, right? I mean, there's a, there's a very uh, big element of perspiration to it. I'm not one of these guys that sits down every day and writes. I mean, I'll sit down every day and noodle a little bit. But unless something catches my ear, unless something catches my ear that I'm just noodling around with, you know, I'll generally put the guitar down or, or walk away from the piano after about, you know, half an hour or something like that. You know, and then inevitably I'll be mopping the floor in my kitchen and da da ba da 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 you know, whatever. Something will pop into my head when I'm distracted by some some other menial sort of task well i, I recommend cleaning to songwriters because people keep telling me that it's like it, oh, it comes down God, to yeah. you know, doing the vacuuming or something because <laughs> so there's something there very meditative about and 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 exercise too there's something very meditative about it you know you are in the moment and I'm, and I'm like, I am going to scrub the shit out of this floor, you know, <laughs> and it's like, and I get into it, you know, I, I love to clean because it really is a, a form of meditation for me. Plus I'm a neat freak. It's movement, right? As well. It's yeah. uh, the creativity is, is yeah, it's like a walking meditation. You know, some people go for walks and they find inspiration. I scrub toilets and I find inspiration. John, we don't have too much longer left. I was Intrigued about where industry recognition comes into the picture for you, because you've had some. You know, you were honored with this, the songwriting hall of fame. But you know, as I was prepping for this, I was reading some very opinionated blogs as to you know why the Goo Goo Dolls are not inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and all this sort of stuff, which I don't understand because I'm British anyway. But I just wonder whether the industry could do more for the likes of Sam Fender. Or, you know, whoever's up and coming now. I mean, I, I saw Sam at a Mercury Prize, and, and that's been sort of said to be important in the UK. I mean, how much do those things mean to you, or could they mean to up and coming artists? Well, you know, those things, I think those things are important to up and coming artists because I've been nominated for Grammys four times and never won, of course. But, you know, I always, bullshit when people say you know oh it's just an honor to be nominated that's bullshit you really want to win i really wanted to win but i was like but i was realistic about it i'm like well you know you're going up against these superstars these cons you know and it's like i did not expect to win you know okay i wanted to 
didn't expect it. Wasn't going to piss and moan that I didn't, you know. And I also got to go to a lot of very good parties after the award show. And what I noticed was because I was nominated, I was getting a lot of press. There was a lot of light on me and what I was doing. And it grew our business. It grew our band. It made our band bigger just being nominated. So in that respect, I think it's, it's, it's great for, for an up and coming artist. I think that that's a great thing. Although I do believe the voting process and the whole thing is stupid and corrupt and silly and, and there is politicking and, and unfair things going on behind the scenes. Uh, you know, same thing with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's like, yeah. Yeah, it's also like hard to understand. I mean, but you're right. I think just being put, it puts you in the picture. And in many ways, you know, the nomination works as well as the winning. I mean, it, okay, it doesn't sort of give you the, the buzz of victory or, or that level of notoriety, and I guess, but it puts you in the picture. And so you just do things with that you take it as a badge of honor and you, you do what you will with it. I think that's how it works these days. Yeah. I mean, when I was lucky enough to receive that Hal David Starlight Award, which was the Songwriters Hall of Fame Award, to me, that was so much more important than a Grammy because that I'd like to consider myself a songwriter more than a rock star. You know, and I've tried to co write songs for other people with really no success at all. But, uh, you know, we were never, we never fit in anywhere, really, to be honest with you. It's like, you know, we were part of the alternative rock movement in, in the United States, but we weren't as cool as the grunge bands. And we weren't as, you know, whatever. I don't know. You know, it's like we've always sort of been just slightly outside the door of everything, you know. But you've definitely become recognized as a band that writes classic songs. I mean, again, it's that, you know, those themes, you know, whether they're kind of the Sam Fender-esque kind of, you know, messages to the marginalized or the disaffected. I mean, they're as powerful at 50 as they are at 15. That's that's what I think. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 because there's, you know, we all feel that way, you know, and I feel, <laughs> I mean, I grew up a marginalized human being, <laughs> You know, and uh, when you're the only boy and you're the last child of five, <laughs> you don't fit into the club. You're never going to have that that bond. Like my sisters, I have four older sisters, and they see each other every day. Still, every day of their lives, yeah. they all see yeah. each other every day. And just by virtue of my gender, I was never going to be as close with them as they were going to be with each other. You know, so you always feel like you're on the outside looking in. And I think that that's given me a kind of perspective. I love to observe people. You've built the connection over the years with your fans, of course. When you look out into the audience, you, you've got this big tour coming up. Who do you see these days out in the audience? How do you connect with them? When I look out into the audience, I mean, uh, A, I'm just happy there's people there. And B, it's sort of like I see a lot of people who have been have grown up with us you know they're the same age as we are and then I see a lot of younger people too which is amazing to me because you know like you were saying these, this, I think streaming has sort of helped people discover a lot of classic music 
the most gratifying thing for me with the audience is, you know, people write me letters. And every day at a show, somebody hands me a note or a letter. And it's never typical kind of, you know, stereotypical rock star stuff. It's just, you know, people write me these notes that are very heartfelt and very meaningful to them. And, and so they're very meaningful to me. And, uh, you know, I, I hang on to them because they're all, they're mostly about, you know, thanks for writing this song. And then they tell me their stories. And it's just like, wow. I, well, again, it's kind of humbling, you know, to hear a story about somebody who like, I always put this song on when I went in for my chemotherapy or whatever. It's just like, damn. That's the miracle of what you do, though, in terms of how you can have that impact on people's lives. And it's sort of so much more than, you know, a chart position or an industry award. The Art of Longevity is brought to you by the Song Sommelier, that's me, working with audio culture. And it's recorded at The Cube, London's first member studio for content creators, based in West London and in Canary Wharf. Our cover art is by Mick Clark, and original music for the podcast is by Andrew James Johnson. John, if you were trying to break through in today's music business, how would you do it? How would I do it? I don't know if I'd be able to do it, but um, I would have to be of the mindset that I am going to stick to what I do best, and I would find what I do best, and what reflects what's going on inside my heart and my head and then forget about being famous just forget it and then somehow get my music out there you know somehow get my music how do you get it out there i don't know i don't know if the world's you know gonna see record companies in the the shape that they are for very much longer you know i mean i I don't know you know i mean because so much promotion comes from the internet and things like that, you know what I mean? But there are ways, you know, it's so funny because I've been to, to a young kid about this. and I never give anybody my advice unless they ask for it. And he was like, well, what, how did you guys do it? And I'm like, well, it was such a different world because it's like, you know, you'd, you'd find um, fanzines, you know, which were like, you know, little local magazines that, that kids were making about bands that they liked and distributing them in their high schools and that. And then, you know, you'd send them a CD or, you know, and then, and then they'd write about your band and then, you know, you'd sell like 20 CDs in that town and you'd book a gig and 30 people would show up and then you made just enough money to get to the next town. And we did that for years and it slowly gained traction, you know? But now, I mean, you could do that on the internet, I guess. But, but you know, it's, it's just I think people are more, I don't know. Like, I work in a recording studio in Manhattan a lot. And inside that studio, there's a lot of young artists who are finding their way on TikTok. And you walk past the studio or, or you get invited sit and listen for a little while at what they're doing but everything is on camera everything is everybody's looking for their viral moment 
They're trying to create viral moments constantly. It just looks exhausting. And I think that it contaminates the incubator and the, the sanctity of, uh, of being in the studio. That's where you're allowed to make your mistakes. And that's where you're allowed to hone your craft. And, and it has to be private for me. But for them, they're constantly, they're constantly on camera. It's like, well, how do you, how do you get to grow when you have to constantly perform from day one? You know, how are you allowed to evolve and then, and make your mistakes, you know, without the entire world viewing them? I think it's really hard. Uh, it, it's the hardest thing, I think, in, in the industry today. Damn near impossible. You know, and I, I'm not shitting on, on all these TikTok artists because, because there's some really talented people out there. Absolutely. You know, it just, it just feels to me, it's like, how do you build longevity? How do you build a career that's going to last? I don't know. I don't know anymore. You know, one thing I do hope is that those fanzines come back. There's a, a magazine that started in, in the UK. There's a few, actually, but there's one called So Young that I really like, and I think I think you'd like, and it supports kind of up and coming guitar bands, uh, and it's but it's it's just really well done, you know. And now they've evolved from having a fanzine to you know having their own merch, and they've even got a label, and so it's sort of a way of that the artists just finding their own people early on and building that collective. And I, I hope there's more of that for sure as an antidote, you know. I think you're going to start seeing a lot of these collectives sort of coming together where it's like everything is in house because there's, because you don't have the burden of physical, you know, copies of albums, you know, and like, you know, Taylor Swift, you know, I mean, she can sell 300,000 copies of, of vinyl, you know, in a week, but it's the physical copies of it anymore. But these collectives where it's like, okay, well, we have a place for you to write. We have a place for you to record. We will market you. We will do this. But, you know, artists have to advocate for themselves better. Musicians, to me, young ones, aren't very good advocates for themselves. I was not a good advocate for myself. And I got uh, burned really badly on my first record deal and uh, second record deal. And, um, I had to learn the hard way. You cannot underestimate your own value. And I think musicians have this kind of thing, man, you know, where it's like we, we, there's no solidarity amongst musicians. And there's, and, and there's this sort of inferiority complex from other art, art forms, you know, actors and, you know, whatever. They seem to have their shit together more. But, um, you know, Music is hard. It's very hard. All of it is hard. And, you know, having a life in the arts or whatever, it's going to be, you're going to be up and you're going to be down. You're going to be rich and then you're going to be broke and then you're going to be rich again. And then, you know, and, and, or whatever, you know, and, you know, people are going to think you're amazing and then people are going to think you're passe and then you'll come around again. I mean, the, everything seems to be very cyclical. Yeah. You've got to stay on the bus. You got to stay on the bus. And it's like, it's funny because, you know, like, you know, Alice Cooper said that. It was, I thought that was very, very insightful of <laughs> yeah, him. Yeah. was like, look, you're, you, you know, you strap in because if you're going to have a, a long career, 
you're going to be on a roller coaster ride. So you got to strap in. And um, he's one of my heroes, you know, just because of his ability to persevere. Yeah. And incredibly insightful as well. Oh, yeah. He's, he's such a smart guy. John, you're going to take in Australia at the end of this tour. Any plans to come to Europe? You know, we just did a run of the academies over in the UK, which is always fun because people appreciate music, live music, in a more intense fashion than they do here. And it's so exciting. I just, I was so excited. My, the guy that runs the sound at our shows was sitting outside one of the academies that we, I think we played in Bristol and he was, he was sitting outside on the curb and he looked really, really bummed out. And I, I walked over, I'm like, Hey man, what's up? You know? And he's like, ah, just kind of a bummer. And I'm like, why? What happened? He goes, well, last night I had the PA going, the, the sound was about 105 decibels. He goes, but the crowd was 118 decibels. <laughs> and I'm like, so the crowd was louder than the PA system. And he's like, yeah, it's really bumming me out. And I'm like, are you crazy? That's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's like, that's the crowd is louder, singing louder than the PA. Hell yeah. We should be happy about that, man. You know, I'm like, so what? Just, just hang tight. Mm. Ride your position. You know, you're fine, man. This is like that. And that was a, such a gratifying thing. And like people that like, you know what I loved about it too, because we don't go to Europe ever, you know, because we're, we're not one of those bands that really sort of fits on festivals or whatever. Hopefully something like that will happen next year, you know, because that was the goal. Go, we're going to go do a run of these academies and these smaller places and hopefully that will get enough light on us that we can we can get a spot on some that's not a great spot but you know something and at least try to move up a little bit but but the intensity of those shows you know and we don't have a lot of places like that in the states you know where it's a couple thousand people open room open floor you know it's like people just smashed in there and like just enjoying the night you know it's like exciting yeah we can see some great bands come over from the u.s in those academies in great spaces yeah and there's a level of intimacy yeah yeah well john look it's been such a pleasure to talk to you it's amazing what you do and i, I wish you the best of luck with the tour and with new material uh, and look out for for new stuff coming from you i hope you make an album rather than, you know, release a bunch of songs because you are very good at albums. Uh, Thank you so, very much. I think it's the plan. And I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. All right, John. Thanks for coming on. We'll see you soon. Okay, you take care. Have a good tour. <laughs> 